I thought I knew the Tudors. I'd done them at primary school, secondary school, university. I'd seen all the films, I'd read all the novels, I'd uh, visited all the historical sites, I'd even dressed up as a Tudor once or twice. But I was wrong, because I didn't know about the black Tudors. It all began 15 years ago, for me at least, in a lecture theatre at Oxford University. The lecture was on early modern trade. And at some point, the lecturer just sort of mentioned in passing that the Tudors had started trading to Africa in the middle of the 16th century. That was a big surprise to me, because the only time I'd really ever heard about trade with Africa was in the context of the 18th century slave trade. So, I, you know, like any good student, I decided to find out more and headed to the library. And quite quickly, I began to find references to this document, which, when I read it, left me dumbstruck, because this document is from the Cecil Papers, the papers of the personal papers of Sir Robert Cecil, who was Elizabeth I's de facto prime minister by this point. And this document said that great numbers of Negars and Blackamoors have crept into this realm since Her Majesty's troubles with the King of Spain. That meant that there were actually Africans living here in Tudor, England. I had to find out more. Why was there nothing in the books that I had read? Why had I never heard about this? That if there were that many Africans in Tudor, England, surely they would leave some record in the many, many documents that survived from this period. I began my search. Over the next few years, I found records of over 200 Africans living in England in the Tudor period. They appear in a whole wealth of different types of records. Uh, including, many of them appear in parish registers, like these ones, which record uh, baptisms, marriages and burials. Um, you can see some of them here. Um, Nicholas, a Negro of unknown parents, was baptised at the age of three years or thereabouts. Uh, this is the baptism on the left here of Fortunatus a Blackamoor. This is the burial of Margareta a Moor. And this is a marriage of a man called John Acomi. It doesn't actually say he's African in that particular record, but we know he is from other records. We find Africans in tax returns. So there was an alien poll tax at this time, uh, meaning that all foreigners were charged fourpence a head, way up to eightpence a head towards the end of the century. Uh, so alongside French people, Spanish people, Dutch people and all other foreigners, the Africans were being, were, were being taxed. And so they crop up in those accounts. They also appear in household accounts. So this, this particular record is from the royal household accounts, showing uh, wages being paid to John Blank, known as the Black Trumpet, um, by Henry VII. Um, but um, these kind of records survive from plenty of aristocratic and gentry households as well at the time. And so these Africans appear where they're being paid wages or whether when clothing or shoes are being bought for them, for example. They also appear in uh, court records, um, so legal papers, uh, quite often when they appear as witnesses um, giving testimony in court. I found Africans in diaries, letters, wills, 
And there is also you know, the odd visual piece of evidence, like these two images of John Blank, whose wages I just showed you. John Blank appears here in the Westminster tournament role. And the Westminster tournament role is this amazing 60-foot-long vellum document uh, that Henry VIII commissioned to record uh, the Westminster tournament, which was a two-day-long extravaganza that he planned to celebrate the birth of a son to his wife, Catherine of Aragon, in 1511. Unfortunately, the young prince died about 10 days after the tournament took place, but we still have this fantastic 60-foot-long record of what took place. And John Blank is playing a prominent role because as a trumpeter, uh, the trumpets were going to blow every single time anything happened at this tournament. Uh, so he, he appears at the beginning of the role, uh, announcing the beginning of the procession of the entire court to the central jousting scene, where Henry VIII is shown knocking the other guy off his horse, uh, which never actually happened, but that's just a bit of Tudor spin. Uh, and then John Blank plays the trumpet again with the other trumpeters to sound the end of the day's jousting and to signal that everyone must um, leave for the banquet. But this is very rare. Uh, in fact, this, these images are the only known portrait of an African in Tudor England. So I found these Africans all across the country, from Edinburgh and Hull in the north down to Truro in Cornwall. And as you might imagine, about a third of them were here in London. Uh, but there were also quite large concentrations in other southern port towns, such as Southampton, Bristol and Plymouth. But then they also appear scattered across the country in quite rural villages where you wouldn't necessarily expect to find them, such as Bluntersham-cum-Erith in Cambridgeshire, where you can see Dido uh, was buried in 1594. But the problem is that a lot of these records, like this one, are what I would call one-liners. And there's not a lot of biographical information there, and there's not a lot to go on if you wanted to try and find out more about that individual. So in my book, Black Tudors, available for signing after the show, uh, <laughs> um, in the book, I chose 10 of the hundreds of Africans I'd found here to focus on, 10 individuals for whom I was able to piece together more of a biography from the sources. And tonight, I'm going to tell you about three of them. Jacques Francis, the salvage diver, Mary Phyllis, the Moroccan convert, and Edward Swarthy, the Gloucestershire porter. But first, I want to challenge a common assumption. For years, um, while I was working on this subject, whenever I told people what I was doing, you know, maybe, I don't know, 70% of them responded with uh, something along the lines of, oh, right, you mean slaves. Well, I don't. It's all too easy to assume that all Africans in early modern Europe were enslaved. Are, are, we are bombarded with visual images of half-naked Africans in chains in our popular culture. Most recently in 12 Years a Slave, uh, and also in the, TV, the rebooted t version of the TV series Roots, which some of you may remember the original version in the 1970s. But we have these images in our school textbooks when we're looking at the slave trade as well. It's quite often the first image of an African that a child will encounter in the classroom, which is a travesty. And that's some, one of the things I'm working to combat. But 
um, we have to look at these images and remember that they actually come from a completely different time and place. Most of these stories are set in the American South in the 18th or even 19th century. We have to peel those assumptions aside and try and get into the mindset of the Tudors, to try and think about their worldview, what was going on in their world. And to help you do that tonight, I've got some other pictures to show you. So this is Alessandro de' Medici. He was Duke of Florence. Not for very long, he got assassinated, like a lot of people in, in the, that time and place, if you've ever watched the Medicis. Uh, and uh, he, his father was a Medici, and his mother was an African woman called Simonetta. There's these two fantastic uh, portraits uh, painted in the Netherlands around the middle of the 16th century. Uh, and both these gentlemen have remained to be identified. I hope someone does identify them at some point. Uh, but they're, they're clearly not enslaved. The man on the left um, has quite an interesting... This badge in his hat is uh, a clue to his identity um, because it's a, a pilgrimage badge. So if you visited uh, the shrine of this particular saint, you would sort of pick up one of these badges as a souvenir. Um, and this particular saint shrine was very popular amongst the court of Margaret of Austria, who quite confusingly was actually ruling the Netherlands. Um, so, so we think that he might have been part of that court. Uh, and then this is probably my favourite. This is uh, the Congolese ambassador to Holland in uh, the 1640s. So there's something else going on here, isn't there? And it's not these, just these pictures. Um, there's a really telling conversation that I found in the Mexican Inquisition records. Uh, I love Inquisition records. So much detail. And there's this wonderful conversation that's captured there between an enslaved African man called Juan Galof and an English sailor called William Collins, who, through a variety of strange circumstances, have ended up in a Mexican silver mine together. And Juan Galof. Galof uh, is probably uh, a sort of um, Spanish attempt to, um, to render the word Wolof, uh, which is the name of a group of people who live in West Africa. So we have an idea of where he was from. Um, but Juan Galof says to William Collins that England must be a good country as there are no slaves there. And William Collins replied that, yes, there are no slaves in England. Uh, William Harrison explains that in his description of England, that you can see here there's this concept of free soil. So as so soon as um, anyone sets foot on English soil, they become free. And in fact, the only court case to discuss slavery in this period um, concluded in 1569 that England has too pure an air for slaves to breathe in. And we can see this playing out in practice as well. It's not just a theory. We have this uh, petition from Hector Nunez, who was a Portuguese converso, which means that he was of Jewish extraction but had been forced to convert to Christianity in Portugal. Uh, but by this time, he'd been living in London for quite a long time, and he wasn't just a doctor, he was also a merchant and a spy. Uh, he's, quite, he's quite the character. Um, and uh, he petitions the Queen in this document, because he says that, sorry, fell off. He says that he had uh, an Ethiopian nigar working for him, but that this man refused to tarry and serve him. 
uh, and, and he, he said that he'd thought that the law of England was the same as it had been in his native Portugal. But he now has learned that the common law of England has no remedy to offer him in this situation and that he can't just force this man to continue working for him. Um, and we also actually find Africans themselves testifying to becoming free in England. So, for example, in 1490, an African man called Pero Alvarez told the king of Portugal that he had been set free in England by Henry VII. And the king of Portugal accepted that explanation, and this man continued to live a free life in Portugal. And over a century later, an African man named Diogo, who had been brought to England by an English pirate in 1614, um, recounted that when he arrived in England, he immediately became free, because in that reign, nobody is a slave. So, as I said, I've, you know, these Africans were not enslaved in England, and as I carry on telling you some of their stories, you'll see further um, details of how that, how that was. So, in the book, I start each chapter with a sort of imaginative paragraph, trying to put myself, put ourselves in, in the shoes of some of these individuals. Um, so I'm going to, to read um, from one of those now. Um, I'm going to read you the opening to the chapter on Jacques Francis, the salvage diver. Uh, this is a contemporary, uh, I mean, not a contemporary, a contemporary to us uh, image of him that was uh, drawn by the artist Joe Lillington. Jacques Francis, the salvage diver. Jacques plunged into the sea, and the cold engulfed him. It was so different to the warm waters where he'd learnt to swim and dive as a child. He took a series of deep breaths, allowing his lungs to inflate with air and take precious oxygen into his blood and dive beneath the waves. As he reached the depths, he began to make out the shape of the wreck through the murky water. He had heard the tale of how this proud warship had met her doom. The men of the town didn't agree on exactly what had caused her to sink, but they well recalled the spectacle of her quick, cruel disappearance beneath the waves. The screams of the drowning men were loud enough to reach the shore. Their skeletons would be waiting for him amongst the sunken timbers. Hundreds of onlookers, including King Henry himself, had watched helpless as the ship went down. The Mary Rose, that was what they called her. And now that splendid ship lay lifeless before him in the water. Her side was studded with guns of iron and bronze, the latter marked with the royal crest. That was why he was here, why the king had hired his master, to salvage the expensive weaponry. The Venetian could not dive this deep himself, and so he'd found Jacques and the other divers in his team and brought them to this cold island to perform a miracle for the English king. Many of us know the story of the Mary Rose. Here she is in all her glory. And as we know, on the 19th of July, 1545, she set out from Portsmouth to defend England against an invading force of 30,000 Frenchmen 
in what was to become the Battle of the Solent. Actually, I'd never heard of the Battle of the Solent before I started looking into this, but I had heard of the Mary Rose. I think we don't really hear about it because nothing really happened. Apparently, the French managed to take the Isle of Wight for about three days before they gave up and went home. Uh, <laughs> but, so the big drama of the day was actually that the Mary Rose sank, having only just left port. Um, this drawing, which sadly the original no longer exists, um, uh, the Cowdery engraving, shows uh, the masts sinking beneath the waves. I can zoom in on that for you. You can see, uh, as you can see, there's plenty of drowning men you can see because actually less than 30 of over 400 men aboard survived. Uh, this was partly because most of them couldn't swim, uh, but also because actually they'd put up these anti-boarding nets on the side of the ship to stop the French getting on, but in the event it stopped them getting off. Lady Carew, the wife of the ship's commander, George Carew, was watching the disaster from South Sea Castle, which you can see in the foreground here. She fainted as she saw her husband die. Henry VIII, by her side, was probably more upset at losing his valuable flagship and the very expensive weaponry on board. He had the guns on board, marked with his royal crest, were worth maybe more than £1.7 million in today's money. So now he had a problem. His, uh, his first uh, thought was to try to bring the whole ship up, and he hired a team of Italians to try and do that. Uh, but this was a complete disaster, and all they managed to do was break the mast. What to do? Well, plan B was to try to at least salvage the expensive weaponry from the ocean floor. But most Englishmen... Even most Europeans couldn't swim, let alone dive, at this time. In fact, even bathing was considered dangerous. Andrew Board, uh, the royal doctor, wrote that bathing allowed the venomous airs to enter and destroyeth the lively spirits in man and enfeebleth the body. Don't have a bath tonight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, so, yeah, so, so, so what was he going to do? Um, the only, it turns out the only people in the early modern world who could swim and dive were, in fact, Africans. And this was something that English and other Europeans began to observe in this period. So when an Englishman called Rick, Richard Hawkins went to La Margarita um, in the Caribbean off the coast of Venezuela, uh, it's actually called Margarita by the Spaniards because... Um, Margarita means pearl in Spanish and Portuguese, and there was a lot of pearl diving activity there, and it was African divers who were diving for these pearls, as you can see in this contemporary sketch. And Richard Hawkins observed these divers in 1593, and he wrote that they were expert swimmers and great divers who, over time and with continual practice, had learnt to hold their breath long underwater for the better achieving of their work. When a Dutchman called Peter de Maris visited the Gold Coast of West Africa in 1602, he recounted that he, he had seen there very fast swimmers who can keep themselves underwater for a long time. They can dive amazingly far, no less deep, and can see underwater. 
And this association between Africans and the ability to swim, swim and dive became so axiomatic that when George Chapman sat down in 1596 to write a play called The Blind Beggar of Alexandria, um, one character in the play says that he will more like learn to swim and dive into the bottom of the sea. So, Henry VIII hired a Venetian called Peter Paolo Corsi, who had put together a team of divers led by Jacques Francis. Um, two of the, other, uh, the only two other divers in the team whose names we have were called George Black and John Eco. Now, I, don't, we, I wasn't able to find any further details about them, but given their names and their diving ability, it's quite possible that they were of African origin too. This, then, is the part of the story that until now has remained untold. African divers salvaged guns from the Mary Rose. Jacques Francis was born in 1528, probably on Argon Island off the coast of Mauritania. This would have been a great place to learn how to be a salvage diver because it had really treacherous waters that wrecked many ships. It was mostly the Portuguese who were um, active in, in, on this island at the time. Um, so Jacques would have learnt to swim and dive as a child, learning to, to dive deep underwater without any equipment, which is still practised today and known as free diving, but it's obviously quite difficult. And he, but if you start young, uh, you are able to develop the lung capacity, mental strength, and the ability to equalise the pressure in one's ears required to perform that feat. By the time he was 18, he was living in Southampton, working for Corsi and taking his meat and drink at the Dolphin Inn, which is still in business today. But the Mary Rose wasn't the only wreck that the team was working on at this time. In November 1546, a fire broke out aboard the Sancta Maria and Sanctus Eduardus, and the ship sank two, just two miles from the shore. So uh, the uh, Italian merchants who had had goods aboard that wreck hired Corsi to try and bring their goods back up. But the relationship between them soured, and in 1547, the merchants accused Corsi of stealing some tin from the wreck. And this ends up as a court case in the High Court of Admiralty, which is where we find most of what we know about Jacques Francis. And Jacques himself testified in the case here. Sorry, I didn't show you Mauritania. Anyway, Jacques Francis testified um, himself, and this is his testimony. And it says that his English uh, wasn't good enough to testify to the court, and so the court um, hired a translator called John Tirart, who was a wine merchant, uh, so learned some language skills while trading for wine. Uh, and it very specifically says that Jacques Francis testified of his own free will. But not everybody was happy with Jacques Francis's testimony. Three of the Italian witnesses on the other side of the case complained that he was a slave and a heathen and that his testimony should be discounted. And the three of them, uh, what their complaints are so similar that you really do feel like they must have sat down the night before and agreed what to say. 
As an example, one of them, Anthony de Nicolo Romero, complained that Jacques Francis is a Morisco, born where they are not christened, and slave to the said Peter Paolo Corsi. And therefore, he believeth that no credit nor faith ought to be given to his sayings, as in other strange Christian countries, it is to no such slave given. And Romero's right, throughout history, slaves were not allowed to testify in court. Under Roman law, a slave's testimony was only allowed to be taken under torture. The villains of medieval England were not allowed to testify in court. And in colonial America, new legislation was passed to bar Africans from testifying. For example, in Virginia in 1732, it was enacted that Africans were people of such base and corrupt natures that their testimony cannot be certainly depended on. However, Jacques didn't define himself as a slave in his testimony. He specifically describes himself as a famulus, which is a Latin word which comes from the same root as the word family, and it means a servant, attendant, or member of a household, as opposed to the word service, which means slave. And the court accepted his self-definition and accepted his testimony which means that he was free in the eyes of the law. So that's the other untold part of this story. Jacques Francis, the African salvage diver who worked on the wreck of the Mary Rose, was not enslaved. In fact, English courts were to depend on the testimony of Africans on more than one occasion in the century following Francis's appearance. The next the fact that Africans were considered reliable witnesses in court is powerful evidence that they were not enslaved in England. We don't know what happened to Jacques Francis after the court case. He probably didn't carry on working for Corsi because Corsi was thrown into the Tower of London in 1549 for abandoning his work on the Mary Rose to do a job for the Earl of Arundel. But Jacques Francis's rare skills would surely have continued to be in demand. The second black Tudor I wanted to tell you about tonight is Mary Phyllis of Morisco. So let's, um, I'll, I'll, again, I'll read the opening to her chapter. Mary Phyllis, the Moroccan convert. Our Father, which art in heaven, the strange words echoed around the church, hallowed be thy name. Mistress Porter had helped her learn this verse and what it meant in preparation for the day. When she'd reached the end of the Lord's Prayer, Reverend Threckled asked her to rehearse the articles of her belief, and she did so carefully and fluently. Then he asked, did she desire to be baptised? Aye, she replied. And so they went to the font. The whole congregation called on God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ to receive her into Christ's holy church. She had been in London 13 or 14 years now, since she was six or seven. She had seen the church spires every day towering over the city streets. She had heard these people speak of their God, of his great providence, of his heaven, and of his wrath. Finally, Reverend Threckled said, I baptise thee in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And it was over. 
she was a Christian, and she could go forth and daily proceed in all virtue and godliness of living. Mary Phyllis was born in Morocco in 1577, the daughter of Phyllis of Morisco, a basket weaver and shovel maker. And at the time of her birth, Morocco was in the throes of a civil war being waged between Abu Abdallah Muhammad and his uncle Abd Amalik. And this culminated in the Battle of Alcazar in 1578, which is also known as the Battle of the Three Kings, because three kings fought and died there. The nephew, his uncle, and King Sebastian I of Portugal. And when Sebastian I died, there was actually a succession crisis in Portugal, which, actually, which led to Philip II of Spain taking the Portuguese throne and becoming a, what was known as a universal monarch, um, maybe the first man with a, an empire on which the sun never set. And that's another thing I never learnt at school, that Elizabeth I's arch enemy, Philip II, the villain of the Tudor story, became king of Portugal as a result of a battle fought on African soil. So as I said, Mary came to London aged about six or seven in 1583 or four. And she starts out working in the household of John Barker and his wife Anne in Mark Lane in the parish of St. Olive Hart Street, right in the centre of the city of London, a bit north from the Tower of London. How did she get there? Well, we don't know exactly how Mary Phyllis came to London, but we do know quite a lot about how England's relationship with Morocco was developing at this time, although, again, it's not something I ever learnt at school. The first trading voyage from England to Morocco took place in 1551, and by 1558, there was a regular trade uh, with merchants, British merchants actually resident in Morocco, mostly in the Atlantic ports of Safi, Larache, and Agadir. And this was something that really struck me, that actually it turns out that before 1620, there were more Englishmen living in North Africa than there were in North America. And yet we hear all about the New World uh, at school and on the telly and all the rest of it, and very little about the old world in Africa. And this, this trade with Morocco was formalised uh, in 1585 when 40 London merchants formed the Barbary Company. And the governor of this company was Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, who you might know from the movies as Elizabeth I's favourite favourite, I like to call him. And so um, his interest in the trade with Morocco was not so much in the sugars, dates, molasses, almonds that we were importing from Morocco, uh, but actually in a, um, something called saltpetre, which was a key ingredient in making gunpowder that we were getting quite a lot of from Morocco by this point. And that was because the Earl of Leicester was very much a hawk at the court of Elizabeth I. He was, he was very keen on uh, going to war on the continent against the Catholics. So he wanted to have as much gunpowder as possible. And at the same time as this trading relationship was developing, a, di a diplomatic relationship was evolving between Ahmed al-Mansur, should be here, 
Ahmed al-Mansur became Sultan of Morocco after everyone else had been killed at the Battle of Alcazar. Um, and he developed a diplomatic relationship with Elizabeth I, who he always addresses as Sultana Isabella, which I quite like. Um, and uh, he actually sends embassies to London in 1589 and 1600. And uh, we have this fantastic portrait of the Moroccan ambassador to London in 1600. Um, and the Moroccans were here to discuss the potential for a military alliance against the common enemy, which was Spain. And it's, it's no coincidence that that first embassy came in 1589, the year after the English, or in fact, I think the English weather, had defeated the Spanish Armada. Because before that, from the Moroccan perspective, England was just this sort of small, insignificant island off the coast of Europe with very little power beyond its borders. But after they heard the news that the English had defeated the Spanish, they suddenly thought, well, maybe we should reach out to them, maybe they can help us. Because the Moroccans, um, were, many of them were um, descended from the Moors who had been expulsed, no, who had been expelled uh, from, from Spain in 1492. And they were very keen to retake that territory in Andalusia. But ultimately, these, these talks didn't really get anywhere because the English had such different strategic um, objectives. Uh, you know, there was there were some attempts to help each other out, but it didn't really get anywhere, which, again, is perhaps why we don't hear very much about it. Anyway, as I said, Mary Phyllis arrived in London, aged about six or seven, in 1583 or 1584, uh, just a year or two before the Barbary Company was formed. And it's here that the information that John Barker, who was actually a merchant uh, and at some point uh, was a factor for the Earl of Leicester becomes significant, because this may explain why how, and how Mary Phyllis arrived in London. So my, my working theory is that um, John Barker was trading to Morocco on behalf of the Earl of Leicester and that Mary Phyllis returned with him on one of those voyages. Uh, John Barker dies in 1589, but Mary Phyllis continues working for his widow, Anne, for, for some years. Um, by 1597, however, she is working for a woman called Millicent Porter, a seamstress, who lived in East Smithfield. And I sort of wonder, why, why did Mary Phyllis make this move? Anne Barker was still alive in 1597, but Mary Phyllis had moved from a sort of wealthy mer merchant's household in the city of London to uh, a much smaller household. She was probably Millicent Porter's only servant in East Smithfield, which is outside the walls of the city in a much poorer neighbourhood. And I think this is interesting, partly because it suggests um, a level of independence and agency on her part, because uh, if, if, if she'd only left after Anne Barker died, that would suggest she had less choice in the matter. Um, and I, I think... Perhaps her motivation was that in going to work for Millicent Porter, she would be able to learn how to be a seamstress, which would set her in good stead in future to find more um, employment, or even, in fact, set up as an independent craftswoman of her own, 
Um, I actually did find evidence of other Africans as working as independent craftsmen. Uh, we know of a needle maker working in Cheapside in the 1550s, uh, and the record said that he would not share his art with any, um, because he's come from, from Spain and he knows how to make fine Spanish needles, which are made of steel at a time when the English are still making needles out of wood or bone. Um, so he's got a, a monopoly on these new, this new technology. Uh, and another example was a silk weaver called Reasonable Blackman, who was living in Southwark in the 1590s. So, so hopefully that's what, what Mary Phyllis was, was up to. The only other thing I managed to find out about Millicent Porter was that um, back in 1584, when she'd been about 45, uh, she'd been accused of being one that liveth very suspiciously. And... Uh, she'd had to do public penance at St Paul's, despite denying that she was guilty of fornication or adultery. And I wondered whether that maybe made her one of those sort of reformed characters who make the most ze zealous evangelicals. Certainly by the time she met Mary Phyllis, she was very keen to encourage her to be baptised. And Mary Phyllis was baptised at St Bottle's Old Gate on the 3rd of June, 1597. And this is what St. Bottles Old Gate looks like today. Um, as you can see, right in the, in the middle of the city of London with the gherkin there in the background. But at the time, it probably looked more like this. And um, as I mentioned in that opening paragraph, you know, the, the, at this time, the churches really were the t towering over the city streets. They were the tallest buildings in the cityscape, not like the huge um, skyscrapers we have now. And that, that urban geography really reflected the society, which was so religious at the time. And uh, we, we know more about Mary Phyllis's baptism than perhaps any other baptism of an African in this period, because we have, where is it, this fantastic uh, record, three whole pages, you can imagine my delight, um, three whole pages compared with those one-liners I showed you earlier, just about Mary Phyllis. Uh, and I'll just zoom in on a bit for you. Oops, yes, no, back. Right. That's the bit, the first sentence of this three-page account of the baptism, where you can see Mary Phyllis's name and that she's described as being a blackmore. And uh, this, this record comes from the memorandum book of Thomas Harridance, who was the parish clerk. And it's this amazing resource for historians because he actually kept these memorandum books or sort of a parish diary for 40 years. There's, you know, there's I think, nine volumes um, ranging from 1580 to 1620. Wealth of material. Um, and and, and it's, so it's really quite special. And um, it's exciting um, for me to have all that, all that information. Um, so Mary Phyllis's uh, baptism was just one of over 60 baptisms of Africans that I found in this period. And that's um, without saying all the other um, indicators of Christianity, uh, such as anyone who was married or buried in the Church of England would also have had to have been a Christian, uh, as well as those who testify in court. Um, because, of course, you, you swear on the Bible to tell the truth, and that would be meaningless without Christian faith. 
they hadn't introduced the Quran into the courtroom by this time. Um, so, uh, again, you know, we know about the Protestant Reformation, but not about Africans who became Protestants. And uh, Eng English, English people at the time were, were quite clear that, that Africans could become Christians. Um, a Baptist preacher in Bristol wrote that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And uh, a merchant called William Bragg wrote that Africans were created after the image, similitude, and likeness of God, and in time, the Lord may call them to be true Christians. And I'm pointing this out because it provides such a stark contrast with what happens later in the 18th century. And just to illustrate that shift, um, I've, I found this uh, extract from a London newspaper called Lloyd's Evening Post, which reported in 1760, last week, a Negro girl about nine years old, having eloped from her mistress on account of ill usage, was brought to a church in Westminster by two housekeepers to be baptised. But the mistress of the girl, getting intelligence of it, while the minister was reading the churching service, seized upon her in the face of the congregation and violently forced her out of the church, regardless of her cries and tears, telling the people about her that she was her slave and she would use her as she pleased. So that's such a stark contrast to the way that Millicent Porter is clearly encouraging Mary Phyllis to be baptised and supporting her in the education required for that because the Protestant faith uh, was very clear um, that uh, the individual had to have a kind of personal understanding of the Bible uh, and that engagement with, with the religion. And Millicent Porter was, wasn't the only person with that sort of attitude. Um, Paul Baining, who you glimpsed earlier by mistake, Paul Baining, um, who uh, was a merchant and privateering magnet, so sponsoring privateering voyages, which were sort of legalised piracy. So he got very wealthy from that. Um, but when he died in 1616, he left five pounds in his will to the minister of St. Olive Hart Street uh, for instructing his African servant, Anthony, in the principles of the Christian faith and religion when he shall be fit to be baptised. And similarly, Mary Phyllis you know, demonstrates at her baptism that she has had that sort of education because when the curate asks her certain questions about her faith, Thomas Harridance reports that she answered the curate very Christian-like, and afterwards, when he asked her to say the Lord's Prayer and to rehearse the articles of her belief, she did both say and rehearse very decently and well, confessing her faith. So she's learnt the Lord's Prayer and the articles of the faith off by heart. And this is interesting as well, because actually uh, this ceremony... Uh, there, was no, there was no written uh, liturgy for it. The first liturgy for an adult baptism only appears in the Book of Common Prayer in 1662. So what Mary Phyllis went through was a sort of um, improvised uh, mix of the infant baptism, which, of course, you know, babies don't recite the Lord's Prayer, even the most advanced ones, um, uh, and, and the, um, the, conversion, the conversion, the confirmation ceremony that other people would do when they're a bit older. And one of the other things we could get out of Thomas Harridan's account is a description of who actually attended the baptism. And 
In the top left here, you can see these three names uh, joined together with a, um, a bracket. And those are the names of the three godparents, um, William Benton, Marjorie Barrick, and Millicent Porter. So Millicent Porter is being really so supportive of Mary Phyllis's baptism that she's actually acting as her godmother. And uh, this, this also says twice here, diverse others, and it says it again, diverse others attended the ceremony. And I think this large congregation partly uh, reflects some curiosity amongst the parishioners because although, as I said, there were various Africans being baptised in this time, it was still fairly scattered in time and place. And so it was still an unusual um, experience. To, to witness. But I think it also um, symbolises a sort of ritual, ritualised welcoming into the parish community. Um, but the, uh, the text of the baptism ceremony talks about the newly baptised person now being regenerate and grafted into the body of Christ's congregation. And it was this kind of acceptance that most likely motivated Mary to want to be baptised at this point, because it really was necessary to be a baptised Christian in order to play a full role in Tudor society. But she was 20 years old, and she had been in London for 13 or 14 years, and that could partly be because of uh, the attitudes of the Barker family as opposed to Millicent Porter's approach. Uh, but another possibility would be that now, age 20, Mary Phyllis wanted to get married. And... As I said, marriage required Christian status. And I've actually found records of Africans being baptised you know, a matter of weeks before their marriage. And, and there, are, there are various records of, of Africans being married to English people in England. Um, a man called George Best wrote in 1578, I myself have seen an Ethiopian as black as coal brought to England who, taking a fair English woman to wife, begat a son in all respects as black as the father. And we have uh, various marriage records, such as this one of John Acomi that I mentioned earlier. He married the widow Perenil May in Hertfordshire in 1603. But it wasn't just African men marrying English women. African women also were marrying English men. Uh, for example, in 1600, a woman called Joan Maria... Um, in Bristol, was married to a man called Thomas Smith, who was a bills maker. So a bill was a kind of weapon, and Smith was manufacturing those. And there was a biblical precedent for this. So uh, in the Geneva translation of the Bible, which was the most popular one at this period, um, the original text is translated as Moses marrying a woman of Ethiopia. And you can see from this painting a Dutch interpretation of, of that. So marriage was definitely a possibility for Mary Phyllis at this time. Unfortunately, Mary Phyllis then disappears from the records. We know that Millicent Porter died in June 1599 and was buried, but we don't know what happened to Mary Phyllis after that. As I suggested earlier, I'm hoping that she then began a, a career as a seamstress in her own right. And at this point, I just wanted to show you this fantastic portrait, which isn't a black Tudor, because it was probably painted in Bologna, uh, in Italy. Uh, but she does... I mean, it's just such a fantastic image, isn't it? Uh, and she, my, my excuse is that she has some pins in her bodice, uh, which you can see here, uh, which um, might suggest that she also knew how to make the odd dress or two. 
So the third and final, but definitely last, but definitely not least, um, Black Tudor I wanted to tell you about tonight is Edward Swarthy, the porter. Uh, and I'm going to begin by reading the opening to my chapter on him again. Um, unfortunately, I don't have an image for him uh, because uh, Joe Lillington didn't know he existed when he did those other pictures. So, Edward Swarthy, the porter. Sir Edward Winter had a reputation for violence. In his youth, he had killed a man in a duel, fought against the Spanish Armada, raided the Caribbean with Francis Drake, and spent four years imprisoned in France after seeking to follow the wars on the continent. Yet, as he approached 40, in the winter of 1596, he was serving as a justice of the peace in Gloucestershire. Still, all was not peaceful at home. Winter had summoned one of his servants, John Guy, to appear before him in the great hall of Whitecross Manor, where a small crowd of local men had gathered. At first, they exchanged only words. Winter accused Guy of gross negligence. But when Guy did not appear to be the least bit contrite, Winter called for his porter, Edward Swarthy. On his master's command, Swarthy took up a rod and brought it down hard and fast on Guy's back. Guy cried out in pain. The assembled company looked on in shock as a man of good standing was soundly whipped. Sir Edward struck a few blows himself before it was over. As Guy limped away, he bade him depart like a knave, dismissing him from his service for good. Edward Swarthy looked down at the rod in his hands, then back at the man he had dined with every day in this very hall. In the future, he would have to turn him away from the gate. He gripped the rod very tightly, and the colour drained from his dark skin. For Edward Swarthy had another name. His alias was Negro. He was a black Tudor. So let's start with Edward Swarthy's name. His first name, Edward, is the same of that as his master, Edward Winter, which suggests that he may have been baptised with Edward Winter standing as his godfather, because it was quite normal uh, to be named after a godparent. The most famous example of that in this period is probably Leo Africanus, who was baptised and named after Pope Leo X in Rome in the 1520s. And uh, unfortunately, the parish registers uh, from their village uh, do, don't survive until si before 1678, so I was unable to find out for sure. And his surname, Swarthy, uh, obviously comes from the, the old English word swarthy, meaning dark-skinned, and if that wasn't clear enough, he also has this alias of Negro. And uh, Edward Swarthy is working as a porter in Gloucestershire, in the village of Lydney, which is at the southern end of the, the Forest of Dean, in rural Gloucestershire. How did Edward Swarthy, an African man, come to be working as a porter in rural Gloucestershire? You may well ask. Well, I think that he is most likely to have ended up in Gloucestershire because Sir Edward Winter 
set out on a voyage to the Caribbean with Sir Francis Drake in 1585. And Englishmen inevitably would encounter Africans when they set out across the Atlantic to raid the Spanish ports in the Caribbean. Because between 1502 and 1619, over 300,000 Africans were transported to the Americas, mostly by the Portuguese and mostly to work in the Spanish, um, I'll show you, in the Spanish colonies um, that had developed by this point. And I uh, have a, an image of, of some of them working in a, a Spanish silver mine here. But not all Africans in the Spanish Atlantic world remained enslaved. Some of them managed to escape into the hinterland and set up their own settlements, and they were known as the Maroons. Uh, and you can find Maroons in every um, place that Europeans brought enslaved Africans because the desire for freedom never left them, and where possible, they did escape. And uh, we have this fantastic portrait of three maroon leaders um, from Esmeraldas in Ecuador. And here they're on a treaty-signing visit to Quito in 1599. And I think this image really projects the sort of military power that they had in this world. And it's this fantastic uh, combination of three different cultures in one image. The artist himself was indigenous um, Ecuadorian. And you can see that um, indigenous jewellery, the gold jewellery they're wearing, as well as the Spanish clothing, and, of course, their African heritage. So there's a lot going on there. Um, so, again, while we're familiar with Francis Drake, his voyages to the Caribbean and encounters with Africans often remain untold. And actually, well, there is a clue. There's always a clue. In, the, in this uh, portrait of Francis Drake, if you look closely, he's wearing a jewel around his waist which is uh, known as the Drake Jewel. It was a present from Elizabeth I, and it, it's now in the V&A, if you want to look at it. Um, but um, the uh, people have often wondered what the imagery of this jewel represents. And actually, uh, as I describe elsewhere in the book and don't have time to go into tonight, uh, there is this amazing episode in Drake's career where he ends up allying with the Panama Maroons, which, who are known as the Cimarroons, and uh, successfully attacking the Spanish treasure train as it's crossing the Isthmus of Panama. And he makes away with 150,000 pesos of Spanish treasure. Uh, thanks largely to the Cimarroons, uh, and this alliance is brokered by an African man called Diego, uh, without whom Drake would never have made that fortune. Uh, so, uh, and the success of that actually affected um, English policy for the next century or so. They're, whenever they're thinking about attacking the Spaniards in the New World, they always factor in, well, maybe we can ally with the Maroons again, or even turn the enslaved Africans that are still working with the Spanish against their masters. And this feeds through the discussion right up until uh, when Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell is planning his Western design uh, in uh, 1654 or 5, where their plan is to attack Hispaniola, uh, and they fail miserably and sort of take Jamaica as an afterthought. Uh, but um, that, and part of the failure is down to the fact that they had been relying on the idea that the Maroons of Hispaniola and the enslaved Africans on those Spanish plantations would take the English side, which, of course, the reality was more complicated. So that's what I think this imagery represents. 
but back to 1585. Uh, in September 1585, Drake um, and his fleet of 24 ships left Plymouth. And, uh, and Edward Winter was captaining one of those 24 ships called the Aid. And you, as you can see from this map of their route, they set off and they raided Santiago in the Cape Verde Islands and then crossed the Atlantic to raid Santo Domingo, Cartagena and San Agustin in the Caribbean. And at each of these ports, enslaved Africans ran away from their Spanish masters to join the English. One Spanish official reported that Drake had carried off 150 African men and women from Santo Domingo and Cape Verde alone. And so this must have been how Edward Swarthy met Edward Winter, most likely during the raid on Cartagena, because this is where Winter took his, uh, the most active role. Uh, he actually swapped his ship's command for a land command and would have been amongst these soldiers who you can see marching to attack the town um, at its weakest point. And in fact, they knew that that was the town's weakest point. You can see another option would have been to come through here, but this is actually a chain across the harbour here, so that would have been more heavily guarded. There's a little fort there. Um, uh, but they actually knew that this was the weakest point to attack on the information they had gleaned from some African fishermen that they've encountered uh, as they were approaching the port. So in that case, I suppose, the Africans were, were helpful to the English. Um, anyway, having left Cartagena, um, Drake's fleet went on to Roanoke, Virginia, where uh, Walter Raleigh's um, men were trying to set up the first English colony in Virginia. But by this time, uh, the, they found that the English there were desperate to go home. And they, th just shortly after they arrived, there was a huge storm uh, with hailstones that were described as being as big as hen's eggs. Um, and that actually killed quite a lot of people, including presumably some of these Africans, because um, you know, the numbers that these Spanish officials are reporting as having left do not match up with the numbers that we find in, in England afterwards. But some of these Africans do survive and make it back to Europe. Um, most dramatically, um, one gets as far as Paris. Um, Edward Stafford, the English ambassador to France, writes back to London in August 1586, and he writes, there is in this town a Negro with a cut on his face that saith he came with Sir Francis Drake and stole away from when, him when he was landed in England. And actually, this African is kind of in cahoots with the Spanish ambassador, and they're going around Paris spreading misinformation about Drake, saying his voyage was completely unsuccessful, fiasco, and this man is the kind of eyewitness, because the news of Drake's return and his success on the voyage has not yet reached Paris at this point. And Stafford is writing back desperately for good news to counter this, uh, this propaganda campaign. We also find Africans... Uh, appearing uh, in the household of Henry Percy, the ninth Earl of Northumberland. And it says in the record that he had been brought there by Mr. Cross's man. And Robert Cross was the captain of one of the other ships on the voyage, the Bond. And when we look again at that petition I showed you at the beginning, Hector Nunez's petition, it says that the Ethiopian Negar that he's having trouble retaining uh, was brought from the port of Santo Domingo in Nova Spain beyond the seas. So I think like those three... Um, this voyage is the most likely way that Edward Swarthy um, ended up working for Edward Winter in Gloucestershire. And he wasn't the only African working in an English aristocratic or gentry household at this time. I also found Africans working for the Earl of Leicester, William and Robert Cecil, 
and Walter Raleigh. And they would have been paid wages, um, like James the Blackamore, who was working as a cook for the Earl of Devon, I mean, the Earl, it was the Earl of Bath in Torstock and Devon. So, finally, what led to Swarthy whipping John Guy at White Cross Manor in 1596? This event is really a shock to us because we've always assumed that it was always the white man whipping the black man in our history. And that indeed was the case for the vast majority of the time. But on the 3rd of December, 1596, Edward Swarthy whipped John Guy in front of a crowd of 20 men. And those men were shocked too. But they were not shocked because of any racial element they were shocked because John Guy was a much higher status servant than Edward Swarthy. Because John Guy had lived in the Winter household since he was a child. He'd been brought up there. He'd been taught Greek, Latin, and French, probably alongside Edward Winter, because you know, there wasn't going to be one, more than one Greek tutor in the household. Um, and by this time, he's actually in charge of Winter's ironworks, uh, on a wage of £60 a year at a time when the average servant's wage was £4 a year. So why was he whipped? Well, Winter accused him of running off to Ireland while he'd been away uh, with two other servants, leaving the ironworks unmanaged. And he said to him, Therefore you have deserved correction at my hands, being so good un a master unto you and always willing to prefer you and therefore you shall have punishment for your great abuse. But there was another explanation. James Buck, a neighbour of Winter's, and also a deadly enemy, had a different explanation. He said that Winter was angry with John Guy because he had recently married Anne Buck, James Buck's daughter. Because this whipping was just one episode in a much longer-running family feud. Uh, James Buck and Edward Winter's fathers had hated them, each other as well. They'd been in court against each other in the previous generation. And we know all of this, actually, because James Buck took Edward Winter to court in 1597. And these are just some of the documents that survived from that court case. And uh, Buck actually accuses Winter of a like, whole host of crimes from enclosing common land, stealing wood from the Forest of Dean to fuel his ironworks, and actually arranging for James Bucks to be assaulted by some of his servants. Um, but the only part of this case against him that Winter freely admitted was the whipping. And the court case took place in, uh, in the Court of Star Chamber, so, known, so named for its beautifully starry ceiling. And the judges of the Court of Star Chamber were another, included Elizabeth I's Privy Council, which included at the time both Cecils, the Earl of Essex, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and the Lord High Admiral. So the testimony about Edward Swarthy whipping John Guy was heard before some of the most prominent noblemen and politicians in the land. And Edward Swarthy himself um, gave a deposition in the case, and this is it. Uh, and he, he largely supported um, Edward Winter's version of events. He emphasised that the whipping had not been premeditated, uh, and rather it had come on the sudden, and that he was not prepared of his rods beforehand. And 
the fact that he does testify in this court case shows that, like Jack Francis, he was seen as a free man in the eyes of the law. Again, we don't know what happened to Swarthy after 1597. We do, in this case, know what happened to John Guy. He went on to become the mayor of Bristol, an MP in the parliaments of 1621 and 1624, and the governor of the first English colony in Newfoundland. Here he is uh, meeting the Bearsook people, who were the indigenous people there. Uh, apparently, they got on relatively well compared with what happened later. It's quite something to look at this picture and think that in his youth, that man there with a feather in his hat had been whipped by an African man. So those were the three black Tudors out of the ten in my book that I wanted to tell you about tonight. And they, of course, are just a fraction of the 200 or so Africans that we know were living here in Tudor England, centuries earlier than most people usually imagine. They came here from Africa, like Mary Phyllis, from Southern Europe, and from the Spanish Caribbean, like Edward Swarthy. And they were not enslaved. There was no law of slavery in England. They were paid wages, they were allowed to testify in court, they were baptised, all key indicators of freedom. And that acceptance by the Church of England and the parish community was so very significant in such a highly religious society. But the image I'd like to leave you with is that of Edward Swarthy, a black Tudor, bringing down a rod on the back of John Guy, a future coloniser, because it utterly inverts everything we thought we knew about the Tudors. Thank you.